thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 60. This week, we cut straight to the interview with a distinguished visitor calling in from the other side of the planet to discuss the first Russian aircraft to be featured on the show, the MiG-29 Fulcrum. And stick around, because after the interview, a former podcast guest returns to share his thoughts on what it was like to train against the Fulcrum in his trusty F-A-18 Hornet. Hit it. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Well, those of you who have listened to the Fighter Pilot Podcast a while know that when the show is graced with a distinguished visitor, we omit the chit-chat, announcements, and listener questions, and instead cut straight to the interview. Well, that is the case on this episode because dialing in all the way from central India is a high-ranking gentleman with extensive aviation experience. He joined the Indian Air Force in 1966 and trained as a fighter pilot, seeing action in the 1971 Indo-Pak War. He downed a Pakistani F-86 Sabre in his very first engagement while flying a Hawker Hunter, his first operational aircraft. He went on to fly a variety of aircraft, including the Su-7 Fitter, MiG-21 Fishbed, and even various transports and helicopters. He inducted the MiG-29 Fulcrum and Su-30 Flanker into the Indian Air Force, was a MiG-29 demonstration pilot, and was an instructor pilot both at the academy level and TACDE, the Indian Air Force Top Gun equivalent. Over a 40-year career, he served all over India as well as abroad in a number of field and staff assignments. He is a staff college graduate and instructor and is an alumnus of the Air War College in the United States. He retired in 2006, settling down in Mao in central India, where he is currently occupied writing on his experiences and views on national security matters. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it is my honor to introduce and welcome to the show Air Marshal Harish Massand, call sign either Copay or Fulcrum One, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But Air Marshal, hello and welcome to the show, sir. Oh, hi there, Vincent. Yeah, pleasure talking to you, and that's a long introduction, I must say. <laughs> um, I'm humbled. All right. I definitely had more to work with, but we're going to get to that. And I'm really excited to have you on the show. So thanks for dialing in. And I think we're about as far apart in the world as we can get. It's 9.30 p.m. for me, and I believe it's 10 a.m. for you. Yeah, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, for me. Okay. All right. So an air marshal is the equivalent of a three-star admiral or general here in the West. But I think you said once that your favorite time was the mid-grades where you were flying mostly, huh? Yeah. In the early days when I was flying as a flight lieutenant or, or a captain level, you know, uh-huh. those were the most exciting uh, flying days, actually. Okay. Because you had a lot of fun, yeah. 
Air Marshal, we could certainly talk about any number of the many aircraft you flew, but today I'd like to focus on the MiG-29 Fulcrum, if that's okay. Yep, okay. So here on the show, we have what we're calling the aircraft series, and we go through a litany of different questions. And so let's just start right at the beginning. Could you tell us what the MiG-29 Fulcrum was designed to do? Well, I think in the, the Russian Air Force, they designed it more as a lightweight air superiority fighter, basically. You know, about the same time it was being developed, about the same time when you had the YF-16 and YF-17 competition going on for the lightweight fighter in the U.S. It's about the same time. So flew around uh, 78 or 79 for the first time, as I remember. And uh, we got it in the Indian Air Force in, in 1986, 87. We trained on that. There were two aircraft actually being developed by the Soviet Union at that time. One was the Ram-M, which was the MiG-29 later, the Fulcrum, mm-hmm. right? And the other one was the bigger one by the Sukhoi Design Bureau, the Su-30, called the Ram-L in the earlier satellite photographs. And that became the Su-27 family of flankers? That's right. That's right. Okay. Yes. And India ended up with both of those. Well, yes. Yeah, right. We started with the MiG-29 in, uh, like I said, in the mid-80s. And in the mid-90s, we signed up for the twin-seater version of the Su-27, that's the Su-30. Right. Upgraded to Indian standards called the Su-30 MKI. That's right. Modified for export to India, as I recall. That's right. So with the MiG-29, you call it an air superiority fighter. Uh, Was it also designed initially with some air-to-surface capability, or they added that later? Well, very rudimentary right in the beginning. I mean, they have this capability because they have the weapons. I mean, basically all free-fall, unguided weapons. But uh, I don't think the Russians or the Indians initially intended to employ the MiG-29 for that role. So it specialized in the SPRT role. And uh, while we had those weapons like bombs and rockets and things like that, unguided ones, the Indian Air Force never used it for that role at all. Right, in, right from the start. Mm. Later in the recent years, when we've upgraded the MiG-29, it's got some great stuff, in, including you know sensors for air-to-surface operations like the radar and uh, laser and other things. And it's got uh, precision-guided munitions. So now it has true multi-role capability. Well, so to be fair, it was built during the Cold War, right? And it was, as you said, a counter to the American teen fighters, we can call them, the 14, 15, 16, 18. And it was intended as well to be very rugged in case the Cold War went hot uh, and had to either move forward or back. So we'll talk about that in a little bit with some of the design characteristics. But like you said, it was designed in a time when aircraft were designed really to do one thing. And in this case, it was air to air. Yep. You're right. Okay. Yeah. So that being said, is there a particular air-to-air role that it does well? I always thought of the MiG-29, and you might tell me I'm wrong, but with its relatively limited fuel capacity, particularly compared to the Su-27 family, I always thought of it as maybe a defensive or point fighter, something very close to its home base. Would you say that was accurate, or was it able to get out and go a decent distance? Well, in the initial versions of the Falcon that we got, the MiG-29 that we got, you're right, had limited internal fuel mm-hmm. and uh, carried just one uh, drop tank of 1,500 liters under the belly in between the two engines. And that gave it some range, but not as much as the Su-27 or the other Western fighters, certainly. But then, you know, within about, 
I would say within about 200 kilometers of the battlefield could do all that with this fuel. The later versions that we got, a few years later, had uh, three tanker versions. You know, there were two wing tanks of 1,100 liters each. And that added to the uh, the range, of course, by taking up two stations. Sure. But in the air, in the priority role, I mean, you don't want to carry 10 missiles, I would say. I mean, just, just <laughs> four or six of, you know, different mix. Good enough. Yes. Really, if you're going to get, because you're not going to stay in combat forever, really. So all the extra ammunition that you're carrying is just load. That increased the range of the aircraft with the three tanker version. And now with the upgraded version, we've got even more internal fuel and air-to-air refueling capabilities. So, right. so that puts the aircraft back into the game in terms of, you know, pretty good range wherever you want to operate, yeah. And one thing that's interesting about the MiG-29 compared to even, let's say, the Eagle, which was a little before it, but let's say the F-16, is some of the different avionics that were built into it from the beginning. So we had the infrared search and track that had an integrated laser, and we had a pilot-mounted queuing well before we had that in the West. You're right, absolutely. And at that particular time in the 80s, when we got it uh, with a powerful radar, with the infrared search and track, as you mentioned, which we call the OLS, and of course the helmet-mounted uh, sight, not just a display, just a basic queuing sight, all you know, coordinated and uh, slewed to the missiles on board. It gave it tremendous capability in terms of, you know, dogfighting or close combat or whatever to lock on and, and launch without wasting too much time. Right. And that capability didn't come into Western fighters till much, much later, I think. Right. Well, in typical fashion, if you'll think of it this way, the Soviets came up with something basic and reliable and it worked. And the West took 20 extra years, but made something extravagant like you might see in a science fiction movie. So, you know, I guess it's a question of what mindset you want to take. But Yeah, and far more expensive. Oh, yes. True. Mm-hmm. And heavier and harder on the neck, sure. which is, of course, an issue for those of us who fly a lot. No, to your point, though, so I used to be the threat aircraft, and it's funny to think of the MiG-29 as a threat when we're sitting here having a very cordial discussion, but um, as a Top Gun instructor in 2000, and at the time, that was, the fulcrum was the threat. We considered it the main threat to the MiG-29, although the SU-27 was certainly there, but we just didn't think of it as quite as proliferated. We got to know the aircraft quite well and some of the weapon systems. We're going to talk about that today, but yeah, the helmet, as you stated, with the high off-bore capability of the what we would call the AA-11 Archer is uh, quite a formidable capability. I mean, now we have the joint helmet and the AIM-9X, right. but prior to that, the Archer was the big boy on the block. True, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, let's talk about the variants, and you've already touched on them a little bit, and here's where we have to kind of think of the two sides because we have the indigenous nomenclature and then we also have the NATO nomenclature. And I imagine you're familiar with both, but let's start with what we would call the Fulcrum A. And I believe, was that the MiG-29 S or just the plain old MiG-29? Well, no, that was just the MiG-29, I mean, A or B or C. Okay. I mean, as we call it here, quite frankly, they had very, very minor differences in the in the versions in terms of the avionics, basically. The S and the SM and the SK versions came a little later when the Russians tried to move towards uh, what they later called the MiG-29M, the truly multi-role and rigged up aircraft with the glass mm-hmm. cockpit and other things which they tried to sell. So you would, I would say that one of the S versions was a fatback version, which had 
you know, which we call the fat pack because it had uh, more internal fuel and it's in the upgraded version now. Where from the right, canopy, the spine. So the, yeah, the spine was all filled with fuel, basically. So those are the versions, and and I think the MiG twenty nine M would be closer to the Fulcrum E, as you call it, in the West. Right. Right, and all the other variants of A, B, C, D would fit into somewhere between you know S and SK. Right. Now, unfortunately, most of these aircraft didn't see service really. I mean, they were developed and you know kind of used here and there, but didn't really see right. service in large numbers. And as I recall, so you have the letter that follows the MiG-29, and that was typically some sort of Russian word that affected or influenced or changed the aircraft. And then in the West, of course, they would give it that NATO designation. So yeah, to your point, the Fulcrum A was your baseline operational fighter. And then the Fulcrum B, I believe you called that what? The MiG-29UB? That was yeah. your two-seat Yeah, variant. UBA in Russian, yeah. Okay, yeah. And that did not have a Radar. Well, it didn't have a radar, yeah. yeah. To accommodate the second pilot, didn't carry a radar. Right. It carried the holds, the infrared search and track, and almost everything else it had the same internal fuel, could carry the same uh, external tanks, goes far, but without the radar, yeah. Right. And then, like you stated, the Fulcrum C had the larger dorsal or spine with the fuel. I believe it had an integrated electronic attack system well, as well, if I remember correctly. And then the Fulcrum D, I believe, was the naval variant. But I don't think India didn't have any of those, correct? No, the Indians got the MiG-29K, which is the naval version later, much later, I think. Oh. Yeah, yeah. We, we, the, our Indian Navy operates uh, one carrier just now uh, with a whole squadron of uh, MiG-29Ks. Yeah. Okay. And K in this case stands for carrier, yeah. but uh, in this particular variant will have what upgraded landing gear, so it's stronger with a hook, absolutely, and absolutely. folding wings, and I believe an extra weapon station on each wing. Yes, and and extra fuel and other things, you know, the modification that came with later the sort of the the M version, yeah, something like okay. that. Now, did you get to fly one of those, or were those only in the Indian Navy? Or well, that no, work? no. I, the, the Indian Navy got it uh, after I retired, and so, so I never got to fly that. Okay. I wonder, though, I'm guessing you could have jumped right in and taken well, off. Well, I could even now, because I remember it backwards. I mean, you know, everything in the 29 <laughs> is so familiar. Yeah. And God's been very kind that uh, my back is holding up, so I can still haul G, and, you know, my eyes are still okay. So oh boy. I would love to fly, but unfortunately, nobody would get me into the cockpit. But I was very fortunate, <laughs> you know, three years after retirement, 2009, I mean, you know, I was like 63 or something at that time. Uh-huh. And the Russians were displaying the uh, MiG-35, which is like a modified version, which carries a little more export version again of the M, but without right. thrust vectoring. They were displaying it in uh, in Bangalore in one of our air shows over the Aero India, and they invited me to fly it. And uh, <laughs> I hadn't flown a fighter for something like four years by then, so. And they just let you jump in and go. I mean, it was two seater, fortunately, but the guy just sort of you know put me in the front cockpit and said, "Okay, start up," and then let me do everything because he was just kind of watching from the back. Yeah. And the Russian test pilot, and he was he's quite happy with the way I flew it because I did everything. I did the Cobra. Now, this had a fly-by-wire control, oh. so I could do the Cobra more easily on that than, than on the in the other A versions, which had the manual control, and they had the right. stick pusher coming in between, you know, once in a while. Mm-hmm. We could do the tail slide on the previous version very well, which I used to display. But this one, I could switch off the wire, fly-by-fire, and do a Cobra comfortably. So <laughs> it was fun. Okay. 
And I think we call that one the Fulcrum F. But getting yeah. back to that, when the MiG-29 debuted in India, I think you told me before we recorded that you were doing demonstrations in front of audiences and military personnel with something like 15 or 20 hours is all in the airplane? Yeah, yeah you're right. Because, you know, frankly, when I got into the 29 in Russia and actually I published that article, the first trip that I did on it, I felt I was in a hunter again all over mm. because it flies, you know, the controls are as light, the visibility is the same. If you compare the rate of climb and dry power, the rate of turn at 10,000 feet in dry power, everything was like a hunter. And you put on the burner and it became a super hunter. So I wrote an article called The MiG-29 is a Super Hunter and published it then. It's available on the net even now. Oh, okay. So when I flew the 29, I felt very comfortable. And uh, as we came back naturally, I mean, you know, in 87... June, we started taking deliveries of these aircraft in India after assembly. And obviously, our, our bosses were very keen on displaying this aircraft. So they asked me, I said, you know, what do you think the aircraft can do? And I had a profile ready. And you know, within about 20 hours, I was kind of displaying this aircraft for our shows here and there. And of course, I mean, I went about it very gradually. I mean, you didn't do everything sure. the first time. The tail slide and the others came a little later with more experience. But, you know, all the other maneuvers you could do right from the beginning. Yeah. Right. Well, and to be fair, 20 hours is probably quite a bit more than 20 flights, right? In other words, these flights were fairly short. I would say about 35, 40 missions. Yeah, by then. Yeah. Because not only is it not carry a bunch of fuel, but also you're using it very quickly, depending on whether you're doing a demonstration practice or air-to-air yeah. -air missions or something along those lines. You know, we could fly the aircraft uh, at altitude for crews and other things like escort missions for an hour and a half or, or even longer with the tank. But I felt when I inducted the aircraft that, you know, the life of the aircraft is precious. Every, every minute on the aircraft that you log is burning up some life of it. And so therefore, we used to start training, you know, where we climbed out to our operating area. As soon as we got there inside, we did our engagements or whatever the set situations that we had. And on the way back, we were regrouping and descending and landing. So most of my combat training missions were like 25 minutes, 20 minutes. And my <laughs> display missions were 8 and 10 minutes. Oh, wow. That's not a lot of time in the airplane and takes quite a few flights to get very many hours. Yeah. So Okay. So but, you know, like in eight, 10 minutes or 25 minutes, you hauled uh, 8, 9G a few times and, you know, and mm -hmm. you did everything. I mean, you were always with maneuvering the aircraft. There was no time to be really straight and level and just hang around right. and waste time. Right. So that gave you a lot of experience. Did you mostly do your demonstrations in India or did you travel outside? No, no. Those days we didn't have this policy of taking a foreign aircraft outside to display. Okay. We displayed the MiG-29 all over in India, yeah. Now, what can you tell us about why it looks the way it does? I mean, at some point, someone decided to make it a twin engine mm -hmm. and twin tail. And, of course, single pilot for the most part. Of course, two-seaters as required. But, And we alluded to this a little bit with the Cold War scenario. Yeah. But it does have a fairly unique appearance. What yeah. can you tell us about it? Yeah. You know, what I gathered from the designer, actually, Mr. Belyakov, the chief designer, Pratislav Arya Belyakov, I spoke to him extensively later when he came and visited us and much later in the MiG-21 biz upgrade. And what I gathered was from him was that they wanted to make an aircraft where even the fuselage of the body was a lifting body. So they, they kind of gave it a sort of a curved shape, almost like a cobra, you know, a hooded cobra. Mm -hmm. So when the aircraft taxis out, I mean, you know, the first time when we saw the aircraft on the nose wheel, when it pumps up a little down, if you use the brakes, 
it almost looks like a cobra, you know, trying to strike. So <laughs> it, it's a great design. Of course, the finish, I mean, I must admit over here that if you stand up close to a 29 and park it next to an F-16 or a Mirage 2000 or any of these Western aircraft, you will find that the finish of the aircraft is not quite the same as the other Western aircraft. It's a little rugged, you know, kind of crude. I mean, it's got mm-hmm. a little wavy surface and some of the rivets and other things are visible. But then uh, again, Mr. Belyakov said, why waste money on this? Because these are the things that actually give me, prevent the air from breaking up at high ang- angles of attack. You know, this is amazing, actually. So so they made it simpler, they made it more rugged, and they got some benefit out of it. Sure. Of course, a little, little extra drag, form drag, naturally, and that works on the, the range and the radius of action a little bit. But you could compensate Well, everything is a trade-off, yeah. as we like to say, in uh, aircraft, and as in with many things in life. Did you ever have a chance to have situations, as you put it? That's an interesting word, but to either dogfight or train with F-16s or Mirage? No, unfortunately, no. no. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, remember, I, I went into the 29 as a squadron commander, so I had about two years tenure on there. And that's it. Then I moved on and, you know, got kicked upstairs from <laughs> next rank and moved on to other jobs. So right. operations officer, where I continued to fly the, the MiG-29s with the 3rd Squadron, yes. But then, you know, when I became uh, one star, and then all kinds of staff jobs, I didn't get to fly. So at those days, actually, we weren't even exercising with the Americans and Red Flag and the others like today's people are. The Americans come over and the Su-30s and the MiG-29s and the MiG-21s have been participating in that. All that started, I think, around... 2004 or five. So oh, as you were ready yeah. to retire. Yeah, just about retiring. So I never got, got into those. Okay. How many hours did you end up with in the MiG-29? And again, I realize it's different than how many missions, but... I've got just under 500 hours, but I would say more than 1,000 missions. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so the average less than half an hour. Yeah. How many flight hours total in your 40 years of experience? I've got about 3,000 flying hours. And back again, I say, you know, in the earlier aircraft also, so I've got about... 6,000, 5,000, 6,000 missions total, wow. about 3,000 mm-hmm. hours, yeah. That is impressive. Getting back to the way it looks, there's some sort of intake covers when the aircraft is on the ground. Is that correct? And is that for yeah. unprepared surfaces, or what can you tell us about that? These are called uh, FOD, or foreign object damage doors, and they are closed on the ground, and they only open up when you raise the nose wheel at about 200 kilometers indicated on speed takeoff? before takeoff. Okay. And they're meant for that, and they again close the same way, you know, when you return land. Hmm. And they're meant for that. Unfortunately, I would be very honest that we we did have some problems with the foreign object damage, despite the doors, not while it was taxiing or, or taking off. But I would say that if there was some rubble on the surface operating service and you raised the nose wheel at that time and the, and the nose wheel still carried a little bit of the rubble, and as the intakes opened, it tended to go in. But we got over that pretty quickly, you know, because we okay. devised a method where we actually didn't uh, lower the nose wheel on landing at all until the intakes were completely closed. Oh. That gave us aerodynamic braking as well. Right. So we didn't have to use the chute, the tail chute with it. Mm-hmm. We hardly used brakes to stop on a normal runway. But you could land short, do short landings, you know, on unprepared fields. And generally you got away. More of a problem actually on the, the engine was internal object damage. I don't know at that particular time when we were getting the 29, uh, the Soviet Union was in a disarray and 
I would say that, you know, sometimes there were bolts left behind or things left behind inside in the intake. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, bolts from the intake uh, system or rivets popped out and, and went in. But those problems, you know, as the years went along, the Russians hardened the system and we also kind of overcame. Right. To talk about the ruggedness, if you give me a minute, I would just like to mention this. Sure. I, I remember when, when we came back from a mission and my number two, my wingman, the ground crew found that his right engine was completely meshed up with some damage, you know, and we didn't know what it was. And we, later we found that it was one of the internal objects. So somewhere down in the flight it flew and completely mangled his blade. So I remember asking him and saying, you know, did you notice any crunching noise or grinding noise? Or He said, no. So I said, all right, did you notice that you needed a couple of percent more power on this engine to keep it, you know, kind of level, you know, and trim in your... <laughs> And he said, actually, I needed 2% more on the other end. So I said, you know, in jest, I, I mean, in joke, of course, I said, I think we should throw a bolt into every engine. It works better, obviously. I don't think not. the maintenance personnel would appreciate that. But, yeah. Oh, heavens. So very rugged and uh, built to withstand a lot of neglect, not neglect, but abuse, maybe is the word I want. Well, I would say damage, not abuse. I mean, no system in the world can take abuse. And I keep saying that no, that's true. to people. That you handle your aircraft just like you handle everything else, your cars and others, with care, and they last forever. And, and I'm very proud to say that, like, I've got a thousand missions on the 29. And I had some great technicians, and all, they all became very friends. And we, we worked as a team. In those thousand missions, I've never had one single failure on the 29. As a matter of fact, in the entire Air Force and everything that I flew, I've never ejected. I've never had to go through any of these things. Even wars are very fortunate, actually. If you look after your assets, they work well. And that is a lesson beyond just aviation, I would say. Oh, yeah, everything. Speaking of the flying, let's get back to that a little bit. You said it was a real joy to fly it. Was it pilot intensive? Was the hands-on throttle and stick good? Or did you find that it was comfortable or that you had to look inside to find switches? What was it like to fly the MiG-29? I found it very easy to fly, frankly, and and quite, uh, like I said, you know, Compared to the earlier Su-7s and the MiG-21s that I had flown, Russian designs, this had a lot more on the throttle and stick. I wouldn't say it was completely hot ass, as we call it, but uh, almost everything was on the throttle and stick that you wanted to do, except for some radar and armament switches that you had to select. And those were conveniently placed uh, at eye level, just left of the the head-up display, the HUD. So it wasn't difficult. Now, I always believe that you fly fighters. I mean, you're you're a fighter pilot, so, you know, you fly fighters not by looking inside of the instruments. You fly it by feel, and then you check whether you're actually doing it correctly, you know, with a glance inside. Mm -hmm. That's the way I used to fly it, and I found it it always worked. And that's the way I try to teach my youngsters, you know, to to use the 29 to its limits. Because, you know, while training, I mean, you make a little mistake. You lose 100 feet or gain 200 feet. In fighter flying, who gives, you know, right. too much about it, really? I don't want to use any four other words over here. So who <laughs> Thank gives, you. <laughs> who gives anything about it? I mean, 100, 200 feet in fighter flying in combat. But then you slowly get into it, and you can literally haul, say, I want 8.5G or 9G in the stern. You actually do it without looking inside at all. And you look inside later, and you find that you've got that 8.5 or 9 that you wanted. And the controls were very light, so it was a pleasure to fly. You know, very, very light controls like the Hunter. You caressed the controls. You didn't control the aircraft. 
<laughs> you didn't have to manhandle it. Yeah. I think to your point, the trick though is to take someone who's new and get them to the point where they have that experience. And there's nothing like repetition of flying to get that because True. the only way you know what it feels like to pull, like you said, eight and a half or nine G's or to do a level turn or whatever it is you need to do is by doing it over and over and over again. And True. it's the same thing for musicians or really anyone who has mastery of anything. And you just have to hope that the young pilots can get to that point without making too big a mistake along the way. Yeah, but I would say because the aircraft is simpler to fly, it's easier, it's very pilot-friendly. If I could do it uh, at a relatively older age, I think the young people can do it too, you know, comfortably. <laughs> well, by the time you had the, as I'll use your words, relatively older age, you had the benefit of years and years and hours and hours of experience, uh, Harish. So That is true. Uh, that is true. I won't yeah. let you off too early, easy on that one. <laughs> let me ask you this, though. The aircraft was designed, as I understand it, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, for a Soviet pilot who maybe didn't have the autonomy that the West has trusted their pilots with. How did you find the controls for, say, the radar and some of the other systems when you use those in the Indian Air Force? As far as did you find that they worked okay just with some modifications or was it a real limitation? But uh, we always thought of fighter pilots in the Soviet era as kind of an extension of someone on the ground. Well, you're right. I mean, that was the Soviet or the Russian philosophy initially. But the Indians have been operating, as you know, from the beginning with Western aircraft. I mean, we had English and French mm -hmm. and all kinds of aircraft. And we were trained differently right from the beginning. So so even in the Su-7 or the MiG-21, uh, while we had this ground controller trying to feed you some information of where the target was, and you were just supposed to pilot the aircraft towards that. In the 29, we had a data linking system called the Lazur, and that fed all the threats and the and whatever you were supposed to engage on your screen. Now we got that information, but actually we operated far more freely. You know, we took the situation by talking to each other. We didn't have data linking, unfortunately, between aircraft at that time in the 29, which is coming in now. You know, with the Su-30s and the upgraded 29s, it's come. Of course, the other aircraft. So we didn't have that, but we had to build up the situation awareness in, what shall I say, in group combat by quick articles and understanding who's where and what's going on. So right. we operated far more freely. We exploited the aircraft that way. Right. So you figure out the boundaries of the equipment, and then you operate them to get the fullest effectiveness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of freedom on the pilot, you know, initiative. And sure. What he wanted to do. I mean, just like... People, particularly children who play sports, some are taller, some are shorter, some are heavier, lighter, whatever. And you just, each child finds a way to make do with the bodies that they have. And so it's uh, not that much different, perhaps. But all right, let's move on to armament. Okay. And again, in this case, sometimes there's different terminology, but let's uh, see if we can step through. Let's start sure. with air to air. And actually, let's start with a gun. It's got a pretty hefty cannon, a 30 millimeter. Yeah, 30 millimeter cannon. Yeah. We carried about 150 rounds. And uh, I remember Waldenbach and the other chief, other designer and, and Belyakov both saying that actually you don't need to carry uh, even 150 rounds because, you know, they had tremendous, uh, what shall I say, the gun solution through laser ranging, which was very accurate within, you know, laser is very accurate within a meter or something like that. So it gave you the lead angle pretty accurately as to where you had to aim. And so actually a short burst would get the guy. So they said even 150 is too much you know, in combat. So 
but we carried out in fifty. You know, a pretty good gun. Okay. Yeah. Good, you know, two or three solutions for gun firing. You know, different kinds. But it was not a Gatling gun, so the rate of fire was a bit slower. No, but with slower. those large rounds, you yeah. only needed one or two hits. That's it. <laughs> Did you ever train to use it in the air to surface? No, we never used the twenty nine in the air to surface roll. No. Not even the gun? No. You know, like I said, if I can go back to my hunter experience, I mean, we carried, yeah. we had four guns there with 135 rounds that we carried, you know, on each. That's like 540 odd rounds that you right. carried total. Mm-hmm. Even those days when there were no missiles with us and nothing, and we had to get into combat. And the intention was always to get to, you know, on a high G maneuvering aircraft, you always had to get, as you would know very well as a fighter pilot, you had to get in within two, three hundred yards, because otherwise you couldn't hold the lead, you know. I mean, if you're further than that. So I snuck up on the saber that I was firing at from, uh, you know, up to, I think finally opened my guns at uh, 50 yards. So I fired just just about four or five rounds per gun. I mean, I fired a total of 18 rounds from four guns, you know, in that combat. (laughs) So that's a very short burst. And I brought back 520 rounds back. So, wow. so you actually don't need so many, really, if you right. aim accurately and if you know what you're doing, not just fire away. Sure. Did you have any trouble avoiding the damage of the aircraft? No, luckily, didn't get a scratch. Like I said, you know, I've been, God's my co-pilot. I always said that. So, <laughs> so I never had this. Fair enough. Uh, not a scratch on my aircraft in all my missions. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we have the gun. We also have expendables. And these are interesting because they're actually angled forward on the top of the aircraft. Is that right? For the chaff and flames? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Slightly. What's the point of that? Well, they are on top, basically, because you're going to move away. And frankly, you know, if they're too far behind, then the aircraft moves ahead faster, I think. Mm-hmm. So the shaft and flare actually try to cover, when you're traveling, cover part of that distance, you know, and be closer to the aircraft right. so that you don't get hit, I think. Yeah, some of the kinematics are a little better if you project it into the wind before it yes. just falls back behind. Yes. Okay. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. All right, let's talk about air-to-air missiles, and we have a couple different kind on the uh, MiG-29. Let's start with the big one, what we would call the AA-10 Alamo. Alamo, yeah. Is that an R- yeah, R-20, R-7? R-27. Yeah, Alamo right. was the R-27. This had two versions, actually, that we carried, both the radar version as well as the uh, infrared version, whatever, you know, the infrared seek on top. Mm-hmm. So these were two kinds we carried there. Then we had the Archer, as you know, A-11. Right. On the 29, which I actually mm-hmm. fired on a practice target when I was training in Russia. So they gave us one, you know, shot, different people got sure. different, you know, somebody got a gun, somebody got the missile, or someone got the R-27 launch. 
So we all we all had experience on that. I mean, it could also carry the older R60 AFID missile family, uh, the R60 MCAR, the improved version of the other. And now the later versions have been air to air, have the R77 or the Amramsky, as we as you call it in the West. AA12 Adder, I believe. That's right. It. That's right. The A12 Adder. We carry that now, which came with essentially with the MiG 21 Biz upgrade, the Bison. And it moved on to the Sukhoi and the uh, MiG-29 family. And with the Alamo, as we call it, the AA-10, that particular one has, like you said, basically the same body, but a different seeker. So you can have it either radar-guided, similar to an AIM-7 Sparrow, or an infrared. That's right. That's pretty impressive. I don't know why they haven't thought of that in the West. I'm sure there's a good reason for it. I'm sure they got it going somewhere. I was reading about it. I think you've got... Some of these smaller ones, uh, missiles, you know, not the, where you don't have to carry so many in the F-35 and the others, you know, in the same bay. I was reading about these, mm. what are they called, DART or something like that. It's a smaller missile that you're carrying. They will have different uh, different heads. <laughs> I think people are looking at that, of course, different okay. kinds of heads. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And then the R-60, like you said, we call that the AA-8 AFID. That's right. And then... The Archer is the A11. And then generally three stations on each wing, and then one centerline station for the fuel tank. Does that sound right? That's right, yeah. And then, of course, the carrier version had, I believe, four on each wing. Correct, correct. All right. And then for bombs, you already talked about it, general purpose. Was there some forward-firing rockets as well? Yeah, yeah. We had different kinds of rockets. You know, The Russians use 57-millimeter, 80-millimeter, 240-millimeter rockets, and the S-24, as we called it. And we fired that from the early one. It's a huge one. I mean, it's like a bunker buster, (laughs) if you can get it accurately in our guidance. Oh, jeez. But if you could fire it accurately, I mean, it could go through a concrete bunker very easily and go underground. Okay. Harish, let's move on to performance. You've already talked about the Gs. Is it a 9G limit, you said? Yes. Okay. Now, does the airplane stop you, or is it up to you to stop yourself? (laughs) Well, it's amazing, actually. At you know, even in Indian conditions, the Indian standard atmosphere is like uh, plus ten degrees okay. of the Western, you know, the standard atmosphere, as you call it. And here, displaying the aircraft. I mean, when I found when came in, well, you could haul on nine G comfortably and just hold it forever. As a matter of fact, you have to be careful when you move the throttles up with the onset of G. If you move the throttle too fast, you would accelerate, right? And you will go beyond the correct speed for 9G, holding 9Gs. And then the aircraft will keep accelerating. So either you have to come back on the throttle or you have to hold 10G or something like that. You know, you have to hold more. So the onset of G had to be coordinated with the throttle. And that was the trick that we needed, you know. And quite frankly, in many of the combats with, uh, shall I say, a MiG-21 base, when we used to do DAC or those kind of aircraft, mm-hmm. hardly ever engaged the burner because you didn't need it. Really, you know, <laughs> he's moved around right. in dry power. So, so it could hold 9G forever till you broke your back. Or ran out of fuel. I mean, you're hauling 9G forever. Or the aircraft mm-hmm. ran out of gas. Well, we had the uh, Eurofighter Typhoon episode recently, and Enzo, our pilot there, said the exact same thing, Harish. And it's just mm-hmm. so foreign to me because in an F-18, as soon as you start pulling at all, it doesn't matter what your left hand is doing, you're bleeding pretty bad. Yeah. And it took a long time to get it back. But we also had very good slow speed capabilities. So. That must have been with a lot of load on, on you. I mean, maybe with full fuel, maybe with a lot of external weapons or whatever you carry. I'm talking about in the air-to-air configuration. At takeoff, the 29 had a thrust-to-weight ratio of over 1. 1 is to 1. 1.1 is to 1. And at combat, 
you know, fuel, 50% internal fuel that we call a standard, it, the thrust to weight ratio went to 1.3 is to 1. So That's impressive. So, so, so wow. we just hold on this kind of G, climb vertically or whatever. Speaking of that, what was the highest you ever flew on? In terms of altitude? Yes. I've been to about 16, 16 odd kilometers. The aircraft limit is, uh, service ceiling is 18, I think, and uh, absolute ceiling was 21 or 22. Okay. I've been to about 16, and you didn't need to go further than that, really. Okay. So that's almost 10 miles up. Yep. <laughs> All right. That's pretty high. And what was the fastest you ever had one? Flying at that altitude is no fun, actually, because you're, you're not, I mean, the aircraft is just kind of no, I agree. high Mach numbers and kind of going straight. And yeah. Not much you can do. 52,500 feet, roughly, yeah. which is a little, I've had an F-18 slightly higher, but boy, I was watching that cabin pressure altitude indicator because <laughs> I did not want to decompress up oh, there. That would not oh, yeah, 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 I understand what you're saying, yeah. What was the fastest you ever had one? In air tests, we used to touch 1.8 regularly, 1.8 mark, yeah, but I've taken the aircraft up to 2.1, 1.5, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on a test flight or yeah, exactly. When you're testing it, just to see, you know, and that's impressive. And so your missions could be high altitude or low altitude, fast or slow, and uh, yeah. you really did fly the full spectrum and yeah, and huge envelope depending on who you were supposed to intercept. Mm -hmm. But you know, at high altitude, the agility of the aircraft didn't come into play really because now right. you were out intercepting somebody even higher than you or about the same mm -hmm. level, like a. You know, you're looking for a SR-71 or a MiG-25 class of aircraft or a U-2 or something, you know, and right. snapping up your missile on them or something like that. Frankly, I mean, you didn't have, there was no maneuvering left, really. Sure. But there was not a lot of air left either. So True. maneuvering requires air. So. True. <laughs> All right. So you've already talked about the ease of flying. What would you say, compared to maybe some of the other aircraft you flew, are some of the strengths of the MiG-29 Fulcrum family? The agility, certainly, like I said, the thrust-to-weight ratio, the agility mm -hmm. and, and lightness of the controls. Coming from Su-7, I mean, Hunters, I went on to Su-7. The Su-7 was like a great aircraft to fly, very powerful again and very rugged. But it required some force. I mean, I used to come back with what I called a tennis elbow, you know, every time I flew a Su, you know. I mean, I'm like all of 75 kilos now, so I'm not like a 100, 200-pounder uh, gorilla or something mm -hmm. sitting there. So, <laughs> so I found that difficult. The MiG-21 was lighter, but the 29 was really light. You know, it was amazing, absolutely. I mean, you okay. actually, I don't remember ever moving the controls to get into a 9G turn. I mean, you kind of willed it and it went into a 9G turn. You hardly moved the surface. Wow. It depends on where you're going. Then, of course, I enjoyed the, uh, shall I say, the way it turned on a dime, you know, whether you want to do minimum radius or max rate turn or, or climb out or the way it performed. I mean, very carefree maneuvering in terms of when you went into a day slide or whatever, you didn't have to worry. I mean, even if it, it didn't do it correctly, it just flick and then you had to just neutralize the controls and recover. It recovered very quickly. So very forgiving right. aircraft, very nice. I would say the cockpit space was much better than the earlier version, the Russian aircraft that I flew. You felt okay. more comfortable. The air conditioning was excellent. In the earlier, I mean, 21 we just sweat it out completely in the Su-7s at low level, particularly here, uh, the, I mean, you could, you could get icicle depending on the temperature you set. So very comfortable. I never saw a MiG-29 flight demonstration in person. There's plenty of oh. examples on YouTube, but I understand it's quite a show. Well, it is. I mean, I've got one of my, if you want to go down to YouTube, one of my old uh, shows, a short clip is still there. Uh, oh. As a wing commander on YouTube, yeah. So 
There are many more, I think, I know, but they've somehow somebody's put it on YouTube, the old ones of 89, I remember. Okay. So it's there if you want to watch. and Sure, I'll have to look for it. If you know where it is, if you can send it to me. I'll I'll send you a link. And and if you ever come home and visit me, then I've got those um, (laughs) videos or whatever, you know. I would love to, Harish. Is that, can I consider that an invitation? Absolutely. Anytime. Well, I can deliver your thank you card in person that way instead of mailing it. So, all right. That sounds It'd be good. a lot more fun when we talk, uh, watching the sun go down or whatever. Right. <laughs> the sun down. Well, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I think as much as I'd love to say I could do that someday, it's probably more realistic that you'll come visit me because you have family here in the States. Is that right? I got my daughter in San Francisco. I've got people all over. Yeah. My sister and, all right. and my mom. Yeah. Well, let me know next time you're here and we'll get you on the show. But we're not, it sounds like we're wrapping up, but we're not. So we were talking about strengths. Are there any weaknesses that you're willing to admit with the MiG-29? I can think of one and that's the smoky engines. No, no, I would say one of the most uh, important weaknesses that I pointed out to Mr. Bellico when he came, the first time within three, four months of our operating the aircraft, he wanted our inputs on mm-hmm. what he could do to improve the 29, and I remember giving him a lot. Smoky engines was one, certainly, but then again, typically, uh, as we are innovative as Indians, what we did was we found a way in combat. The idea was to, if you opened uh, throttle, you know, uh, in dry mm-hmm. power towards the end, so what we did was whenever we were coming into kind of the, the visual envelope of 20, 30 kilometers of the other threat, we came in with higher speeds and started throttling back to 3%, 1% or 2% because we were faster than we should have been. So the smoke stopped, at least for that moment. So till you got into actually an engagement, then it didn't matter if you had smoke or you didn't have smoke. But you didn't want to be spotted first. So we got over that. The other one was the fuel, actually. I always felt that if we had more gas, we could have gone further and done things uh, more, you know, easily. Mm-hmm. Especially when we trained with the Su-30 later when it came in and I was commanding the base. I mean, you had to engage and, and make sure that you got something out of it or disengage very quickly at distances. The third was the initial problems with the engine and the life, certainly, in terms of internal object damage and FODs and things that we had. Right. And the lack of the multi-role capability right uh, in the beginning. Yes. Uh-huh. Right in the beginning. In the beginning, sure. I mean, they could have made it because the aircraft had the capability. It had the power. It had the stations available. It just required the systems for guidance and, and the kind of weapons, correct weapons. It's an aircraft, though, that's been improved upon consecutively. And now they're even calling it the MiG-35. So a lot of these issues are being solved, including, I think, on the latest one, some of the thrust vectoring and the newer technology. So they've really perfected it as much as they can, I would argue. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So I don't know. I mean, you're a fighter pilot. I don't give much weight to thrust vectoring, really, because personally, I think you're carrying a ton of weight because thrust vectoring requires extra stuff in the back, you know, in, Mm -hmm. in the engine. So you're carrying, say, 800 kgs or a ton, literally, extra Right. And you're going to use it where? I mean, you're going to use it once in millions, maybe, yeah. you know, of engagements. I never flew with it. I always assumed if the computer needed it and it did it, that's great. But otherwise, I, it wasn't something I was prepared to do. Well, I would say today, particularly it. in combat, and any time you had to keep your speed. You remember the fighter pilot, they always said keep your speed or altitude. Oh, yeah. In thrust vectoring, you really, I mean, you maneuver against one aircraft very quickly. But then you bleed off everything, and then you take time to recover. And, and if you're in a group combat, in a large force engagement, as they call it, well, uh, it's not the guy you're fighting with. Somebody else will get you. 
because you're sitting duck at that time. So I, I'll be very right. careful of dropping my speed in combat today. Mm-hmm. You know, at least keep your potential. So that's why I feel, you know, whether it's worth carrying that one ton extra all the time. Right. How about notoriety? In other words, you know, the movie Top Gun made the F-14 famous. Is the MiG-29 famous around the world or in any movies? Wasn't there, is there a demonstration squadron that flies them? Where would the listening public have seen the MiG-29? Well, I don't think the Russians ever made a movie on it as popular or romantic as Top Gun, (laughs) quite frankly. Well, the Russians displayed it. I mean, by then they were opening up, so they displayed it in Finland for the first time very quickly, you know, uh, the 29. I think as we got it, the, the aircraft was already in Finland and later in Farnborough shows and things like that. Okay. So it's been displayed around the world because uh, Mr. Belikov and Waldenberg were very keen on selling more and more of them. And of course, getting a feedback and improving the aircraft as much as they could. So okay. it's, it's, it's not been hidden from the West really uh, at all, I would say. But it's not been necessarily projected, uh, again, like the F-14. Well, it's not been romanticized. I mean, you need a good lead uh, female for that, and then you need all kinds of... (laughs) That's right. Now, in your experience flying the MiG-29, is there one flight that stands out in your mind, either something that happened or unexpected or expected or a particular air show? I mean, when you think back on your 500 hours in the MiG-29, is there one flight that comes to mind? Well, not really. I mean, I would say some of the DAC sorties that we did with other aircraft, those were the better memorable ones, you know, because you learned a lot yourself and you taught the other side also whatever you wanted to. And I would say, yeah, okay, so I wrote, uh, I mean, we, we actually right in the beginning when we had just about 40, 50 hours on type, less than 100, I think most of us, we were put into an exercise in the Indian Air Force to do comparative uh, performance assessment with the Mirage 2000. Okay. And uh, as early as April 1988. And soon after that, I wrote an article and published that called Rivals from the Same Team. So that's also available on the net. Actually, you know, all this is linked in some hush kit interview that I did. All these articles have yes. been taken by them. Those were, yeah. uh, I would say, memorable. Unfortunately, like I said, or fortunately uh, for me, I never had these kind of uh, ejections or right. flame outs or, uh, you know, failures or things like that where you had to go through <laughs> some rough time. The 29 always, right. I think it's such a reliable aircraft. It always brought you back. It had redundancy. It had backup systems. You could lose an engine and still do aerobatics on the aircraft if you wish to, you know. Wow. So it's that right. powerful. So it always brought you back, really. Well, the aircraft, but also the wingman that you said before. So, oh, yeah. Um, okay, Perfect. Gosh, Harish, this has been a lot of fun. What have we not covered or what have I not asked you about the MiG-29 Fulcrum that you think the Fighter Pilot Podcast audience needs to know about the airplane? Well, I would say it's been, the 29 has been notorious. Uh, you could have asked me actually why so many accidents in Russia as well as, as, well as the other air forces on the 29. You know, okay. and people have lost aircraft and the rate, because like I said, it's so reliable that actually... It never lets you down, and you can always bring it back. I was very fortunate in my tenure, 10, 12 years, that I had the 29 with me, and I was either commanding the squadron or the base or whatever later. We never lost an aircraft at all. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm sorry, but I must be modest and say in 40 years that I've been in the Air Force and instructor for about 35 years, never lost a guy. So even now they are flying in some, some people are flying airlines, some people are retired very happily. My, my subordinates mm. that worked with me. Actually, that uh, notoriety was undeserved because I think 
Right. Some of these people have not handled the aircraft correctly or not understood the systems correctly. Mm. And most of the accidents, I would say, have been pilot error. So that's sad. Well, and on that note, if we can go off script for a second, sure. about a year and a half ago, not long after I started this podcast, early 2018, there was a rash of mishaps between the different United States services. And of course, everybody was all up in arms. Oh, it's the training or it's the aircraft, it's this. And I tried to explain that I thought it was frankly a statistical anomaly that if you throw a handful of coins up in the air, when they land, it's very possible that a few of them will be touching and all be heads. And is that a problem? Well, I think it's just statistics. So India, by some accounts, seems to be having a rather off year. Do you think, is that in fact the case? Or is there anything, if it is, is there anything to point to? Or would you also say that Flying military aircraft is dangerous, and sometimes you're going to have a string of mishaps. Well, unfortunately, the latter is true, as you say, because, you know, flying combat aircraft, I would say when you say combat, I include, you know, transport and helicopters and sure. uh, altitudes and mountains and that kind of terrain. You know, combat flying, that's combat. That's military flying. It's not civil flying. It's not mm-hmm. autopilot flying or whatever, you know. You have the safe routes and things. So it is full of risks, and things will go wrong sometime or the other. Our effort should always be, should always be to train to such a level, you know, that people never get in that kind of a situation. They know when to avoid the situations or recover from them. That speaks of the professionalism and the training of, uh, of an Air Force. I think this year, if you're saying in the Indian Air Force, I don't think their uh, rates that I read about in the papers, I'm sitting far away from, you know, the powers that be, or I don't think the rates are much higher than before, but yeah. I mean, I would say a single loss is alarming. Why, why should we lose oh, sure. one guy at all? I've got a couple of thousand missions, 2,000 missions on the MiG-21, the older ones, and we never lost one there. Why, why should we lose more modern aircraft today? Right. And that was a single-engine aircraft, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and didn't have any aids, you know, to recover. You had to do a lot of uh, innovation to fly in bad weather and come back. I mean, we didn't have G- ILS and we didn't have GPS. We didn't have anything like that. Well, We still operated. And we operated in very adverse weather conditions. I give it to my commanders, actually, because I remember some of my commanders, uh, we used to, when I was a flight lieutenant, they used to push me and say, why are you sitting out? It's raining. Why are you sitting out on the ground? You should be training in this weather. You should be going out and doing things, training other people with you. I thank those people, you know, they took us through, I mean, they built us to a level where we could operate in this manner later. Right. Well, you have to, what is it? Sweat in training so you don't bleed in war. Absolutely. All right. Well, Harish, this has been a lot of fun. We only have a couple questions left for you, and I'll thank you for your time at that point. Uh, First off, what's the future hold? I mean, gosh, 40 years of service to your country. Thank you on behalf of your countrymen. But at this point, are you sitting comfortably in a rocking chair and just taking it easy, or are you still keeping pretty busy? <laughs> well, I, I like I said, you know, what I'm doing now is I, I still try and fly whenever I get the opportunity with friends, and these are all, mm-hmm. you know, tiny aircraft. But sure. I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate I flew the the Texan T6G with a friend in the U.S. That's the radial engine one that makes a hell of a noise, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And I flew that uh, till... December 17, last time I was there. Okay. And earlier, I flew the, the T6C Texan, too, with Beechcraft guys, you know. So that's a 7G wow. trainer, so I kept flying. But more importantly, now flying, yes, I love to fly whenever I can. 
but uh, I'm sitting out uh, not in a rocking chair. I sit and try and write things. You know, it's, I'm, uh-huh. I'm speaking in public forums once in a while, publishing a few articles here and there. What I think is, you know, should be doing based on my experience. And slowly, I think I'm going to work on a couple of books that I have in mind. All right. Well, let me just publicly invite you. We have a site, uh, our website, we have a page called Musings, where I sometimes will write various things. And we're always looking for content. So if you ever find yourself writing something and you're not sure where to submit it, uh, you can always send it to me and we'll be happy to throw it on our website for you. Okay. Great. All right. Well, final question then, Air Marshal Harish Masand, you had told me a couple different call signs you had over the years. Can you say them? Because I might not have pronounced oh, them correctly, yeah, yeah. or at least the first one. Fulcrum one is easy, but was it Cope? Well, the when I was young and flying hunters in, in the East and just before the war, people used to give me a nickname called Cope. That was based on the language and the region I came from. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like very affectionate. So so in the war, I flew with that call sign as Kappe. I mean, because we all became very personalized. And some of the people still call me Kappe, Kapuski, you know, the Russian version of that or whatever, <laughs> you know, the real, real friends. But when I came on the 29, I mean, naturally we adopted uh, these call signs and I became Falcon 1, uh, still known in the Air Force as one of the number one guys on Falcom. So Falcom 1 is mm-hmm. the call sign that I, I would say I retired with finally. And probably cherished, because that's quite an honor. Oh, yeah. yeah, For for the Indian Air Force to be a Fulcrum 1. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, I'll just call you Air Marshal, since that's equivalent of the three-star, as we said before. And uh, Call me Harish, (laughs) I think it's better. (laughs) All right, Harish. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I know the listeners have learned a lot. I certainly did, too. Any parting shots before we hang up? Well, thank you for having me on this show. I, I think we've talked, but... Uh, for an aircraft like 29 and for an aviation buff like you and me, not enough. Sometimes we got to do it again and talk some more. Oh my. Like I said, with a sundowner, maybe. Maybe not yeah. for public, but at least between us. Yes, I look forward to that. Well, next time you're in the States or if I ever make it to India, we'll definitely do that. But yes, I do conclude many of my interviews saying that we could go on and on and on. And yeah. sometimes, by the way, listeners will write and say, hey, don't say you're going to do it. Just do it. We like it. Sure. So, uh, but other people try to time their commutes with the show. So we'll leave it at that. I want to thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank and you. And you have a good rest of your day. Thank you for having me. And you have a good night. Thank you. Once again, big thanks to Air Marshal Harish Masan for taking the time to phone in all the way from India to speak with us about the MiG-29 Fulcrum today. What a great interview. Now here to help us process all that is a guest co-host who had a chance to train against the MiG-29 in his FA-18D Hornet. You remember him from episode 26 back in September of 2018 when we discussed the MAGTAF, or Marine Air Ground Task Force. Welcome back, retired U.S. Marine Major Darren Chung. How's it going, Wang? Hey, Jello, doing great. Thanks very much. It's good to be back. Excellent. Well, man, it's been a long time. Uh, what's new in your world? Last time we saw you, let's see, you were living in the Pacific Northwest and flying for the airlines, as I recall? Yeah, still living up here, loving flying around the Cascades and the Rockies, still working for the same airline, having a great time. Family and I are, uh, are all settled up here. I think we are officially uh, Pacific Northwesters. I got a <laughs> Subaru Outback, so I guess that's the official state car up here, so there I'm in go. now. 
Yep, you are one of them. All right, dude. Well, hey, you're coming back to the show. Thanks very much to help us talk about the MiG-29. Now, before you do, I was just listening to myself before you and I recorded this, and I realized that was really kind of driving the discussion a little bit with the air marshal. And I've actually been called out on this on past interviews from people who say, hey, you know, let the guest talk. And, you know, that's a valid criticism. But on the other hand, for this particular show, this being the podcast, I mean, there's really certain things I'm trying to get to come out. And so if my guest does doesn't say the things that I think maybe are worth mentioning. I sometimes say on myself. So I don't know. What were your thoughts? You listened to it. Uh, did you think I was being a little too uh, forceful? I think you were going for what we try to get when we're studying an airplane. Um, okay. And there's great banter back and forth with you and, and the air marshal. But no, I didn't think so. I thought it was great. I learned a lot. And I think I learned a lot because I was kind of getting taught by a Top Gun instructor. Ah. Which sounds familiar. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, so you've listened to the interview and man, you get a chance to train against one of these. I never did. A lot of pilots did, but that must've been a dream come true. How and where did you get a chance to fight a fulcrum? And when was that? Yeah. So, uh, this was spring of 2003. I was on my first deployment with my squadron. Uh, we were originally based in Miramar, but we were on a, what's called a Western Pacific deployment or UDP for the Marine Corps uh, unit deployment program. And we were on a two-week debt detachment in Kwantan, Malaysia, which is on the east coast of Malaysia. And that was at the time their MiG-29 base for the uh, Royal Malaysian Air Force. All right. So you went up for a couple of weeks and rubbed shoulders with these guys. Now, first off on the show before, I've said that, you know, fighter pilots from all over the world are more or less the same, just different accents and insignia on their flight suits. Did you hit it off with these guys or how was that? We did. The Royal Malaysian Air Force pilots are phenomenal guys awesome. uh, and gals. I think they've got a few female pilots flying fighters as well. All right. Um, Malaysia's cool because they have sort of a, a little bit of everything in their Air Force. They fly F-18Ds, the big motors with the 404 engines on the F-18. They fly MiG-29s. They flew the British Hawk. And the Hawk was actually another airplane that was out in Kwantan that we got to fly with. And then more recently, they acquired the, uh, I think it's SU-30, and I forget which version it is. I think it might be the MKK version of the SU-30. Okay. I think it's the MKM because the first letter M means modified. The second one is export. And the third one is for Malaysia, as I recall. We actually had an article all about this as part of our exclusive content for our Patreon audience. So I'll have to forward that to you. But anyway, all right. So did you get to see all these aircraft on the ramp or did you get to go out and fight? And what kind of training did you guys do? Yeah. So uh, when we were there in 2003, they hadn't gotten the Sukhois yet, but they did have the Hawks and the MiG-29s. And okay. uh, when we first got there, it was a two-week debt. We came up from Singapore after two weeks in Singapore working with the Sings. The MiGs were actually out of town for a few days. So we got up there. We did some internal squadron training, mostly uh, BFM stuff, basic fighter maneuvers, 1v1, high aspect, offensive, defensive perch sets. Then we did some dissimilar work with the Hawks, which actually had a modified knows because they put a radar in the Hawk so they could oh. do air-to-air -air combat using, uh, I think, radar missiles and, and what. So that was kind of interesting. But, you know, we really came up there for, uh, you know, the coup de grace, right? The MiG-29 uh -huh. fulcrum. They showed up about the end of the first week and we flew through the weekend and into the next week with them doing everything from uh, 1v1 
offensive, defensive perch, BFM, to high aspect, to 2v2, to include section engage maneuvering. And uh, I got to do a, a 2v2 set and a 1v1 set with the MiG-29s, and, and it was completely awesome. Very cool. So this was only a couple years after I was the Top Gun SME for threat aircraft. And again, the MiG-29, man, that was it. So you were definitely lucky to have this opportunity. So you heard the interview. I mean, the smoky engines, the maneuverability, the thrust to weight. What was your impression having a chance to swirl with a fulcrum? Yeah. So the smoky engines absolutely can attest to that. You could see them as we were approaching the merge. Um, from a ways off, you could definitely see the engines smoke up as we were across the circle from each other. Most of the stuff that we did were uh, kind of two-circle tail chases. At least that's the sort of the tactic that they seemed to go with as opposed to, you know, one-circle radius fight, a lot of afterburners and a lot of high-alpha maneuvering. They, they seemed to not want to do a lot of high-alpha. They were doing more energy conservation maneuvers, which was interesting. Hmm. The interesting thing I noticed from... Air Marshal Massan's comments was being able to manage the smoke out of the back of the MiG as they were approaching a merge, you know. So you'd come in with a whole bunch of smash, and then as you're approaching that visual range, which, you know, anywhere inside of about 15 miles or so probably, Mm -hmm. he would back off on the engines and sort of carry the extra speed, but get the engines cooled off and prevent the smoke from coming out. I thought that was pretty good head work. (laughs) Um, And, you know, if you think you're going to go fight a MiG-29 and you're expecting that, and when you don't see that, you're really looking for those visual cues, especially out at range, you know, to pick them up. So to have a guy that's savvy with that, boy, is a bummer if you're fighting that guy, but it's really cool to hear from another fighter pilot's perspective. Yeah, no kidding. All right. And then so if you guys were in a two-circle fight, that would be, I would think, an opportunity for the Malay pilot to use his helmet-mounted sight and AA-11 Archer. Did they train to that? Were they calling shots? You know, they didn't call a lot of shots. And for that matter, we didn't either. It's not to say that we didn't take the shots. Uh But I think we're trying to get as much time maneuvering against each other as we could. Mm -hmm. And so you would call a shot, you know, on the ICS for the tapes and you would squeeze the trigger to get the event marker in the HUD. But you wouldn't necessarily call a shot and a kill because it was just, you know, (laughs) you wanted the engagement to keep going just to see how you would do. (laughs) Right. You know, it was funny, the two circle stuff you hear about, you know, this is what it looks like when you're going from neutral to defensive in a two circle fight. And you look over your shoulder across the circle and you see this guy marching backwards on your canopy, right? Like towards Mm -hmm. your six Mm o'clock and holy cow, did you see it uh, with a MiG 29. And we were configured for the fight too. I mean, we took off drop tanks. We took off, most of the pylons. So we were as slick as the heavy D with small motors was going to be. And we did a nice job, but the point was made that we do not want to fight somebody else's fight. We want to make them fight our fight if we could. That is key. Mm -hmm. All right. And did you guys do any exchange flights? Do they have two seat uh, MiG-29 UBs or anything? You know, I don't recall seeing that. We got to walk around the airplanes and kind of climb around on them a bit. I think we took them flying, but I don't recall if they had two seaters or if it was available. I don't remember us doing that. Okay. Well, if it was you, obviously you would remember, but you don't know if someone else had the chance or not. Oh my gosh, would I remember. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, good, man. Yeah. We need to follow this up someday with the SU-27 family of flankers because that's other uh, aircraft that we've always trained against in yours and my career in our eras. And so uh, it's just great to 
hear some feedback from someone who really had a chance to go out and fight against the thing and, and see it for real. And of course, you guys would, I presume, come into the break and land and go debrief at the club and have a good time, huh? Oh, yeah. Did we come into the break? <laughs> 550, oh, almost man. 600 knots sometimes. It was like, it was the wild, wild west. Uh, oh. And it felt like, holy cow, I think we're getting to steal something right now. It was just, it was absolutely the air-to-air highlight of my flying career, without a doubt, being able to fly with and against a MiG-29. Wow. Absolutely the highlight. So I'm really glad that you called me to to talk on this one. Oh, well, you're the perfect guy to follow up, Wang. I really appreciate you being here. I'm insanely jealous. I would have loved to have gone and seen it for myself, but at least we can live vicariously through you. So appreciate you (laughs) adding that to the uh, discussion today. All right. Well, gosh, I guess that then being said, we're just about out of time. Before wrapping up, we do want to thank always our new Patreon supporters, including our strike leads, Eric Pluven and Lee Wang, who would like to give a shout out to all the candidates and staff from the East Lansing and St. Louis Osos, as well as Daniel Momquist. We also have a new mission commander, Daniel Corner, and a new air boss, Andrew King. This is the point in the show where we want to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components or the Indian Defense Forces or its components. So, Wang, thanks for stopping by. And that was a lot of fun. You definitely helped us better appreciate the MiG-29 Fulcrum. Had a great time. The last thing I'll say is uh, the two big points that Air Marshal uh, Massad left with me are uh, speed is life and we shoot big targets. Very good. Excellent. Well, we can all hang our hats on that and live that for another day. Until then, we'll see you back here next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.